Fit them in small crevices, bend them every which way in any angle. Our new Ernie Ball flat ribbon patch cables allow you to freely position your pedals to maximize space on your pedal board. These flexible, metal-housed cables are better shielded than traditional patch cables with built-in strain relief that ensures your audio signal shielded all the way from tip to tip. Multiple shielding materials preserve the signal with low handling noise and the durable PVC jacket exterior ensures long-lasting performance. Offered in 3, 6, 12, and 24-inch length options, visit ErnieBall.com to learn more. Welcome to an Ernie Ball podcast. It starts now. Hello, this is Evan Ball. Welcome to Striking the Chord, an Ernie Ball podcast. Today, we have Chris Caraba from Further Seems Forever, Twin Forks, and most famously, Dashboard Confessional. From skateboarding to the South Florida punk scene to writing hit songs on his acoustic guitar, Chris Caraba has had quite the journey. So in this episode, we'll look at how he developed as a lyricist and how stylistically he's a fairly straight shooter when it comes to writing his lyrics. And we talk about one of his first realizations that his music was breaking through to big new audiences. But I definitely say the centerpiece of this conversation is a story that serves as a sort of masterclass in courage and winning over tough crowds. You'll see what I mean. So regardless of your preferred genre of music, I think if you're a musician or an artist or a music lover, you'll appreciate how real and thoughtful and reflective Chris is in this interview. So given that, I hope you have some time to sit with this episode and really digest what Chris is saying. But enough out of me. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Caraba. Chris Caraba, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is great. So let's let's go back in time just for some context. What were you into growing up? Was it a singular focus on music or did you have other interests, sports? The thing that I was obsessed with growing up was skateboarding. Um, but skateboarding was this great gateway into fu- discovery of music, discovery yeah. of punk rock and and hardcore bands and um, alternative bands, basically all the stuff that spoke to me because I was just, I've never been a fan of pop radio and that's all I'd been really exposed to. And it was just this huge eureka moment, you know, watching these skate videos and and hearing the music and the vibrance and the energy and the unrestrained ferocity that coupled so well with the the skateboarding video parts, it really rocked me. It was a dynamic shift to where I was. Yeah. I was diehard skateboarder, but would slowly become. That would slowly become secondary to music. Yeah, that takes me back because we're. I think we're about the same age, even though you look younger. But um, <laughs> I was really into skateboarding. Are you, were you like ten, eleven, twelve, or are we talking later? I didn't get a skateboard until I was thirteen. Oh, okay, but I got good pretty fast, and I got sponsored by a bunch of companies, and and that's where I had. Um, the best stroke of luck was a store that I was sponsored by when it would rain in Florida, which is every day at about two o'clock in the summertime. The owner of the shop had a, a room set up in the back where where we could watch videos. The, the skate team could sit back there and watch videos. And you had to be on the skate team or the surf team to, okay. to, to be back there. And he could sense that we were getting more and more into this music. And so he started like 
figuring out what bands were on there and just so so we could listen to just the the CDs back there in that room. That was part of what we would do. And then he threw a guitar back there, bass. Eventually there was a whole drums, PA, everything back there. And we were, now that skate team was also a band. Wow. It was amazing how hand in glove that worked, the, the skate culture and my musical rearing. Do you ever skateboard now? Yeah, I skate. You still do? Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. Nice. You still got it? Well, I still skate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So, so when did guitar come into play? I think I was 16 when I got a guitar. And it was a guitar that was found in my uncle's basement. Somebody said, maybe Chris can play this. Ended up in my hands and I started trying to make sense of the thing. Couldn't afford lessons or anything like that. And I kind of value that now because the path that led me down was that of a a songwriter as opposed to um, some of my friends that were getting lessons and becoming like riff masters, learning all the intros to all the Metallica songs or whatever. My thinking process was they're they're able to do that because they're taking lessons. I'm not taking lessons. I'll never be able to do that, but I can play these chords. What if I could sing on top of it, you know? And I never wanted to be the singer, but I thought if I could sing on top of it, I could write a song. If I could write a song, I'd have a song to play because I couldn't learn other people's songs. But if I could write one, I could probably remember it. So where they would, other people would spend their, you know, the, the old ubiquitous 10,000 hours. Yeah. That people spend learning guitar, which I've spent since trying to become a guitar player with prowess. I spent those 10,000 hours learning to make, to, to, to craft, you know, learning the craft of songwriting. So I was wondering what came first, singing or guitar playing, but guitar playing came first. Guitar, singing came very late. Okay. I would sing in order to write the songs right. and, and then immediately teach the singer of the band, whichever the band was, whoever the singer was, the song. And it was all I could do to like sing so just over a whisper to them in the first place. I, I was never a singer. And I really wanted to be a guitar player. I really wanted to be a songwriter. I never really wanted to be a singer, but I wanted to express myself. In my first real band, the bass player saw something in my singing voice that I didn't see. He heard potential there. But in the period that I was in the band was the, was the period where I was forced handily by a very tough guy of a friend yeah. uh, to become a singer. And it took that kind of prodding. It took a heavy hand yeah. to get me over the, the hump. That's interesting. So before you became a singer and a frontman, you seem so lyrical. Did you write in other capacities before, whether it's journal or English class or? You know, that was the area of, of, of school that I excelled in. You know, it was in the advanced classes for English and history because you could write essays. Whereas in math, for example, I think my math class was called math. <laughs> um, I found language itself to, to be really interesting to me. Um, but it was strictly kind of for school. It didn't occur to me that you could sit and write a, a, a short story, say, and that 
which is something I love to do now. Like that endeavor is, is a challenge and and a kind of a beautiful reward when you when you've got something to show for it. I did start writing a journal. It was an assignment in our English class to start keeping a journal. I didn't care for it, but I understood. I I understood after a little while. Oh oh, wait a minute. So. I can say whatever I want and it doesn't have to be good or bad. So just kind of let things kind of happen free form. In doing so, I would accidentally stumble on things that almost seem like they weren't, but they almost seem like poetry on occasion. And I remember underlining a few things in that journal. And later when I would go and say, okay, you know, I've been writing these songs. The lyrics were sophomoric. The, the Everything was sophomoric about it, you know, early, in the early stages. But after that experience with the journaling for class, and I started thinking about how, how could I possibly become a good songwriter as it pertains to lyrics, I thought, well, I accidentally would stumble on these poignant thoughts while just trying to get through this assignment. Well, let me do that. Let me just let me just write. Let me just write as much as I can and see if eventually like there's I can cherry pick something. And that's how it started for me. I was able to write these just just pages and pages and pages of 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 um aimless, I guess kind of like mm. aimless free association. And then go back and read it and say, "Oh, it's not quite aimless. There's a through line here. If I can underline the bits that are not obscured by the nonsense that are telling a story here. Yeah. I so I'd underline it. And then I'd say, okay, this is the story. Now write that story. Yeah. And then I would try to write it. And then I would just write the story, whatever it was. It's just subject matter now. Then I would look at the story and say, great. Now I go back and I look at the things I'd underline and say, why were those so much po more poetic than just writing the story and realizing that they were just snippets of description as opposed to total exposition. And it was just, I realized if you find a balance between in telling a story where you're giving as much as you can to tell your story, but leaving enough that somebody can superimpose their story onto it you might have written a song that's great it's funny i was just going to ask you a very similar question that you kind of answered there but i'm curious how you you think about lyrics as far as being explicit versus being more cloaked and if there's times you, you lean one way or the other way or if it's always sort of a balance certainly the pendulum swings both ways and um there are times that can be very unguarded and um, incisive and revealing. Yeah. And then there's times where it, it's only slightly less so, but it's less sure. so. Sure, sometimes it's, yeah. That's the part where I feel like we're being incisive. For me is, is quite a bit more interesting than say trying to write cool lyrics. My lyrics are, are not cool. There's not a lot about 
my shit that's cool. Says who? When I say <laughs> when I say cool, I don't mean it in a derogatory way. I can kind of I'm very yeah. envious of cool. Yeah. Beck is cool. I think Kings of Leon are cool. They're also super honest. But I think my music is my lyrics are too um unguarded to be cool. Like the strokes mm. are, are they have great lyrics. And they're deep. Yeah. But they're super cool. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. I'm not I'm not I love that as a music fan. It, it's not that's not my that's not the those aren't the cards I was dealt. Right. Right. And I don't care. Yeah. I, I'd rather be um, impactful in a different way. Um, powerful and cool aren't, can yeah. be, cool songs can be powerful, uncool songs can be powerful. As long as they're powerful. Yes. That's, yes. What, I, that's what I'm looking yeah. for. No, I, I, I personally think you've found a, a sweet spot there. I think it's great. You're known for having come from a, a more hardcore punk scene. What, what was the motivation to move in a more acoustic direction? I would either play guitar or scream or what, or eventually kind of sing like in Further Seems Forever, but the songs were always super complex in Further Seems Forever. And I was just, I was, I was looking, I was yearning for a little like simplicity in such a way that I would find it challenging because hardcore scene and punk rock scene, post-hardcore scene, vibrant music, vibrant lyrics, vibrant musical community. But how do you be punk within punk? Because there's, a, there's all these rules. There's not supposed to be rules, but just like anything else, there's rules within punk rock. When I say this, I don't mean like, oh, how can I like stab forward and, and like plant my flag and show how punk I am by being different than regular punk. Yeah. But just like that natural kind of lesson you learn by being in, a, in the hardcore scene and being in the punk scene that like, like yeah, it's defy convention. And for me... and. It meant like playing an yeah. acoustic guitar with no distortion pedal. Yeah. So you, you've played with, with some hardcore bands. You're comfortable in that scene. But there have been times when the, the hardcore fans have been less than embracing. Would you, would you mind telling that story when you played with H2O? I will. Let me lead with this. Because I can't sell this scene short. Okay. It's the scene that made me. The hardcore scene made me. It defined me as a person in a lot of ways. It educated me in how to be a better person. It's a community. It supported what I did when I said, I'm going to sing instead of scream, and I'm going to play acoustic guitar with no band instead of heavy guitar with a whole band. It didn't scoff at it. It invited it. But like any scene, you know, there's, there's, you can't please everybody all the time. Well, I start, you know, I, I'm in Further Seems Forever, which is like a post-hardcore band. It's pretty heavy. It's very complicated music. And I leave the band. I'd already started Dashboard, but it really was just a side project. But I left the band. And I thought I'm going to go on a tour for Dashboard, then I'll come back and decide what kind of band I'm going to start next. 
And that tour just never ended. I, the, the, the wind blew my way, caught me in the sails, and, and that was that. So you've got an acoustic guitar and your voice, and that's it. So like modern convention would say, so like, like which coffee shops did you play? Yeah. But it, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that was a place you could play. I'd never seen a show at a coffee shop. That's just not what my scene was. Right. I was genuinely unaware that that was a way to do things. And I'm not sure, you know, a lot of my music is still kind of like belting out at, at people. It's not gentle just because it's acoustic. So the bands I would play with, the network I was part of was post-hardcore, hardcore, pop punk and punk rock. Those are the bands that I would book shows with. Those are the bands that would put me on their shows. And I was very comfortable playing with hardcore bands. Yeah. So when H2O asked me to go out, it was face-to-face was -face H2O and Snapcase. When these bands asked me to, so you've got one of the biggest, most important punk bands, and two of the biggest, most important hardcore bands of an era and beyond that era. But specifically, H2O was the one, you know, whereas Face to Face has a lot of mel melody and is like unquestionably one of my favorite bands of all time. The reason I felt comfortable about, well, it was an immediate yes, but the, the thing I was most excited about was like, oh, you know, it, it's H2O, they're like me. Their, their music's not on either side, but the people are. Right. And so I knew like I, I'd be with my people, yeah. you know, it wouldn't be totally. It's where you cut your world. teeth. Absolutely. And the crowd would be resistant. I'd walk up there with an acoustic guitar, and visually this is an unpleasant thing if you're there to see uh, all these hardcore bands in that era. I think it's become less so now. Maybe in, you're out in that audience and it's you're angry because that doesn't belong here. Perhaps. Maybe not. Some nights it was just open arms. Some nights it was angry, it was angry scowls. But I did my thing. I played my songs and I would win as many people as I could over. And I knew I'd won at least someone over every night. It felt great. Yeah. It felt great. And I started to feel really good about how this was going. And I thought, man, this is happening. And the, and the scene I am part of and want to stay a part of is embracing me and everything's going to be great. And then movie edit. I'm in Buffalo and I walk on stage before I, I play a note a quarter. Pelts me right below the eye. My eye is immediately turning black. Okay. Chris, play the song. So I, 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 I play the song. And there are quarters coming. It just was like a mob mentality. And I, they're dinging up my guitar, pelting me, covering the stage. On that tour, I think I played five or six songs. And I think I, think I got about halfway through three and felt myself give up. And I thought, maybe no one will notice, maybe the other bands won't notice that I, that I cut the set short. 
I got through that last song and I, I start to walk off stage and Toby from H2O is standing side stage with all of Snapcase and all of H2O and all of Face to Face. That's not totally unusual, mm-hmm. but Toby had his arms crossed and was standing in front of them and they were all like standing behind him and it was a, it was a confrontational thing. And, to- and Toby just, all he did was point back out at that microphone. And I, I got it. He was saying like, you know, you didn't finish. You didn't, you didn't win them over. And you have three more songs that you could try to get them. And so I, I you know, I, it gave me just this absolute enormous confidence that the, the people that they all came to see just told me to go out there and remember that I'm a hardcore kid. Well, like, you, hardcore kids don't slink off. They don't run away. I was retreating, you know. So I sang, and I sang, man, I, I, found, I sang from a deep place, deep inside. And I got pelted with more quarters. I tell you, I promise you, on the last song, that I didn't get hit with a, a, another coin. Now, the obvious thing is that people were out of money. But in my mind, I was like, I got him. I got him. And I looked over to stage left, and Toby's kind of nodding his head, like, yep, kid, yep. And I walked back over to him, and I'm ready to say to him, man, thanks, you know, thanks. And he just points back out there. And I'm thinking, I'm not playing another song. <laughs> yeah. And, he, and I, go, I, say, I say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, and he goes, quarters. Huh? He said, <laughs> You earned every one of those. Go get them. And I went. I picked up every one of them. I had laundry money for probably months. Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> and then Toby ran back to this. this man, this is such a badass move. He ran back to my merch table, grabbed a T-shirt, put it on, and played his whole set with that shirt on. And he said, held up the shirt, kind of off his chest, and said, "See this? This is a dashboard confessional shirt. And this is that's the most hardcore thing you're going to see tonight." And we sold more merch that night than any other night. I love that. Me too. <clears throat> I love how quickly the paradigm can shift too. How he sort of just instantly turned that mob mentality on its head. He did. He did because he is a purist. He's a purist. He believed, not a purist in such that it has, music has to be this box, has to fit mm-hmm. in this box. A purist in, in, in the way that like, no, no. If you have the same convictions as me, you hold on to them and you stand up for them. Yeah. And not as me. If you have the convictions of this scene, you know, that we're all part of, we, we share this conviction. So don't back out now, kid. Yeah, that's great. I, it still feels like a, a scene in a movie to me. It's funny you should say that because to retell it yeah. takes longer than it, had, that, than it took to happen. It's all like, you know, moments that just flew by, just seconds yeah. of, of nonverbal communication and but but the length of the uh, effectiveness of this life lesson life mm-hmm. lesson is lifelong for me yeah i mean I, I i go out there now i'm playing to a willing audience they've invited me themselves mm-hmm. and i'm playing like i'm trying to win over every quarter i can you know that's awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, 
still confuses me why certain people need to belligerently voice their dislike of music when they could just not listen to it. Um, I think that people get territorial. I think, yeah. I think people yeah. get territorial and they believe in their scene and their scene is important to them. And if they perceive it, in this case, I think misperceive it, but if they perceive it, I have to defend them here. If they perceive that somebody's there making a mockery of their scene or being an interloper and appropriating their scene in some fashion, I kind of think they have a right to be angry. Mm. Um, but that's not what I was doing. Right. And I think that's... What became clear. I think that became clear. So let's talk about, let's talk about your bands. Um, so Dashboard... And Further Seems Forever. The albums came out around the same time, but Further Seems Forever was in place first. If memory serves, Further started in 98. Okay. And so with Further, we write at this glacial pace. Songs are complex. The commitment to the schedule it takes to to make records Mm -hmm. maybe a little loose. Okay. we love each other. We have a great time together. We really come up with something unique and special together. Um, it didn't always feel like priority one mm. to get in there. And, and then I was living and dying music at that time. So so that was something I, w- I always had a little trouble with. And as an adult, I can understand, like, who am I to dictate how they enjoy and when they enjoy and when they feel, you know, music and when they feel ready and compelled to make something just because I was so on fire all the time doesn't mean that's how everybody is. Mm -hmm. So we made an EP, further made an EP and had plans for a record, but the record kept getting pushed back. And in this time I was, I was writing this music that I, I gave, would always give further first crack at every song I'd I'd written. Mm. All the songs that are now dashboard songs were, were once presented as this could be a further song. Wow. And they, they, they said no, and they were right. But they also said, like, these are really good. These are special. Like, just keep it this, man. And, like, if you bring one in that works for us, awesome, but just keep on this. You know, they, 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 they could sense that I was in a place that was, whether these songs were going to be further songs, what I was doing was going to be important to further. I was going to be able to take something from that and, and take it to the writing process of further. And they're just really supportive friends in addition to that. And since it was taking so long to get a record made, mm-hmm. I had finished writing my Dashboard record. Now, I didn't think Dashboard was going to be a focus, but I thought it would be like, this is a, a, product, a project I did that I'm proud of. Yeah. And I, my intention was to record it. If, if, if I got really lucky to one tour one time outside of further. And that would be it. It'd be just like this, this little companion piece. Yeah. It was a, re- a little bit reactionary to how complex further was, you know, uh-huh. there's a little more simplicity, straightforwardness maybe. So I recorded the Swiss Army romance before the first further record, f- f- first right. further full length, The Moon Is Down. Yeah. And it came out before The, the Moon Is Down. If memory serves, it came in out before we even, yes, it came out before we even recorded The Moon and Stone. 
And the further guys were supportive of that too. Like we'd play a fur, we'd play a further show. They say, do you want to play a song beforehand? A couple of songs, sure, I guess. So. I mean, I didn't. Mm. This took a long time of them like really okay. hammering me. You're going to do this, yeah. Until the fi- I finally would do it, you know. Because yeah. it wasn't like, do you want to? It's like, how about trying it tonight? How about trying it tonight, Chris? <laughs> tonight, how about trying it? And yeah. finally, I buckled, you know. So, Swiss Army's out. Further starting to div- kind of. I, I'm sad about this still, but even before we recorded Moon is Down, the Moon is Down further started to crumble. Mm. Just where you I, guys... I, I promise you, as mm. I sit here, I promise I'm being honest when I say that f- we started to crumble for reasons I can't even remember. Really? They seemed important. Yeah. And I decided it was a really hard decision because it was finally I was in the exact kind of band I wanted to be in with the exact kind of people I wanted to play with, with actual, with actual, with an actual shot. You know, there was, it was happening. The band was actually kind of taking off and I decided to leave. I'd already quit the band before we recorded the moon is down. I wasn't even in the band anymore when we recorded the moon is down, but we'd had, we're friends. So we kept hanging out and, at some point, somebody said, it's really foolish of us not to make this record that we've worked so hard on. Great record. Did. Thank you. And they were right. They were right. Yeah. And so we made the record. Um, so, so yeah, it all ended up being out of order. But Further came before Dashboard. The Further songs began, came before Dashboard, but the Further Dashboard recordings came before Further's full length came out. I've always been curious about Further Seems Forever, how the musical chemistry came together because those guys already played in a, a heavier band, right? Brought you in as lead singer to start Further Seems Forever. And it's to me, it, it feel, these styles seem to, to dovetail so well where you have really interesting time signatures and guitar parts, drum parts, coupled with your, your sense of feeling and melody. I, so I wonder, did, did that happen very naturally or did you guys have to work to find that sweet spot? Well, I think it happened naturally. Um, but that doesn't mean it was easy because we weren't like rush, you know, like we didn't know what we were doing. Hmm. When we wrote in odd time signatures, it's just because the part that we wrote was like one, no, one beat longer in that bar. Yeah, yeah to complete the melodic guitar line. And so that's what it was, you know? And it, uh, eventually we kind of understood that we, were, that we were utilizing these tools. But in the beginning we were just, this sounds right. Yeah. And it, a lot of it's really not quote unquote right. It's really weird. And we had like no adherence to like a key center or time signature. And, um, and that also meant like if you had a part for that, for song B, and needed it for song A, you could just take it. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we did that all the time. We were just yeah. like cherry picking from our own songs. And so then it, it really kind of became up to me to make it, um, to give this song some anchor mm-hmm. uh, in the melody that made it, that, 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 that um, masked the complexity just enough yeah. that, yeah that the complexity wasn't the focus 
Because yeah. we wanted the songs to be songs, not to be math. And that's partly, I think, what I mean by that that synergy of, of, of the, the combination because someone listening to us who hasn't heard the, the CD might assume it's, it's, it's very proggy, but it, it doesn't come off that way. It comes off very raw still. Yeah, I don't think if, if we did our job, you don't notice the, the, the weirdness, the unconventional nature exactly. of this until you've listened a few times. Yeah. But then it's more interesting because after you listen a few times, you're like, hey, what is going on here? This yeah. is kind of bizarre. Yeah, yeah. But those guys are, I'll be quite frank, those guys are, have the highest kinds of musical minds. They just, they just, they, they don't come from like, none of us come from like a well school, any kind of like music schooling. Like we're not learned musicians, but they just interpret music through the, as the people they are in a really complex way. But it, it's also steeped with intense melody Yeah, as yeah. players, you know, and so... I enjoyed that. And, you know, when they carried on with Jason without me, it was it was really, oh, what a eureka moment was to be able to in, enjoy without having to be yeah. the guy to tie it together. Yeah. To un, just to just sit back and listen to this or, or, orchestral yeah. music that they that they did. Yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. I feel like there's something about, and I think this would apply to, to Dashboard too and, and a lot of music, heavier bands playing mellower music where you kind of get the best of both worlds where you you retain this sort of intensity while also enjoying this melodic aspect and i don't know if, i don't know if you listen to deftones at all oh, but love Def- for Def- for me i feel like their mellower melodic stuff just gets me because it's still got that heaviness to it but it's beautiful at the same time anyway just just a a thought i agree with you and i think that it was a time in the music scene where you could just be weird and get away with it. And I'm lucky. I'm lucky yeah. that I got to be in that band. Yeah. Great band. Well, so let's talk about Dashboard Confessional real quick. You got big pretty quick. Did you not? No. No? I mean, But I think my watershed moment happened quickly in the public eye. Okay. Because I would say I did, I know that I did um, two straight years, 300 days, probably 280 dates of shows, 300 days on the road, and a third year in in the third year of that, people started paying attention on a smaller scale. That's about when I started getting on tour with like H2O and things like that. From the moment when people, where it started to become like, a, hey, have you heard about this? To like everybody hearing about it mm-hmm. was was relatively quick. Gotcha. But that period to get right, to right. that period, first step of like, hey, have you heard about this? Took a long time. Yeah. Did you see that coming at all? The, the success of Screaming Infidelities? And what, what was that period like for you? I didn't see it coming. I didn't see it coming. And it was surreal enough as it happened that I couldn't get swept up in it. There was no like egotistical, uh, there was was no overblown ego. There was no sense of deserving the moment. There was 
a kind of a pervading sense of disbelief. Are there any moments that stand out where you, where it hit you what was happening, or that that something was there was a shift happening? I played um, at VFW Hall in Virginia, and um, when I got there, they told me I was going to be playing last, which is always like a drag because everybody's mm-hmm. leaving. You know, the band they wanted to see is has played and they're leaving. And I'm watching the bands that are playing and I don't know them because they're local to the area and I'm not, and, and they're really good bands and people are, are really into it. And the band before me is like striking their stuff off stage and, and, and nobody's leaving. And I thought, oh, cool music scene. They're like, they're, they're willing to give somebody a shot. And like, I, I remember that I, like they took their stuff on stage and I didn't have much to put on stage, like my own microphone and my guitar, that was it. Yeah. And I walked up with those two things and I placed them on the stage and the crowd like roared. <laughs> and it freaked me out. Like, uh, not in an exciting way. Like what, what's happening? What's, something's going wrong here. This can't, <laughs> like what, what is, yeah. what, what do they have planned for me? <laughs> and I, with some trepidation, I, I set my things up and I, I said, I, I said, hello. And then they, like, I couldn't say anything without them. Celebrating? I, I couldn't say anything without them, like just this roar. Yeah. A reaction of just a wall of roar. And um, then I played my first song. And I went to sing the first line and the crowd just, just hit me with the lyric. Wow. All at once. And I remember going through, I remember thinking to myself, having never played there before, I remember thinking to myself, have I played here before? Because I all like, if I'd never played there before, how is it possible that they would sing with this guy? Maybe they'd heard the song somehow. But like, how could they have made it theirs if right. I hadn't already been here like seven times mm. to, to, to try to win them over. And that was the, that was the moment where I was like, hey, hey uh, people are, are, are kind of like taking it upon themselves to share with each share this music with each other and it's out of my hands. And um, it was like a moment where I realized the, the possibility that, that things could happen for my career, my band, you know, my career. I didn't know what career meant, but for what I, for, for, for my, my giant design of like wanting to be in a band, I, I guess I was. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, do you have a, a, a song or an album that you're most proud of? I don't know that I have a song or an album that I'm most proud of, but I, I'd say The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most is a really satisfying record to me for personal reasons. Do you have any regrets or if you could rewind the clock, anything that stands out that you'd do differently? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I think that there was probably a period where when the success of the band was getting bigger, faster than I was prepared for it too. Um, I'd like to think that I handled it with grace and I don't have any real memory of this, but but I, I find it hard to believe I did all the time. Hmm. I, I have some recollection of being like just stressed out of my mind all the time that's not a real healthy place to be in and, and i just kind of assume 
I kind of assumed that I was short with people that deserved better. And, um, and expected too much out of myself than was fair. So I'd set myself up to fail and then I maybe was just angry about it and maybe was like angry at anybody who would come into my orbit for a brief period there. And I can't, as I sit here, I can't think of any specifics, but I know there were ones. Mm -hmm. I know for a fact there were ones and I, I probably have blocked them out on purpose, you know, because I'm not proud, I'm not proud of, of, well, of the growing pains of, of that period. You're in a unique situation that most people are not in. Yeah, I didn't have a real roadmap and I, uh, I didn't have a mentor or any of those things that, that would be helpful. But, and then the other regret I have is that um, I think in my latter era records before our hiatus, I, I lost the plot a little bit and, and would list, I, I really wanted to be a team player for the record label I was on. And as they would make suggestions, I would listen to them without pushing back my original uh, reasoning for my original intention for the song. I would instead say to myself, well, hey man, I'm here because I wanted to learn from these people. They're in the business of making musicians better musicians. Or so I thought, I think I was right. I think I was right about that. For that specific label, you know. Um, But I don't... but I think I had it right to begin with. And I, th- I wish I'd, I'd kind of trust myself to, to know it. Do you have any advice for aspiring bands navigating the, the landscape today? Yes, I do. And especially like ones that are on the precipice of big success. The ones that are making the leap from clubs to theaters, the ones that are making possibly from say, indie labels that are like your true partner like your family, to major labels that are your business partner and not your family. Mm-hmm. And that is to assess, assess what you, you're going to want years and years from now from the music you make. For me, I wanted the music, meaning the masters and the artistic control over, over the things in the years as, as, I, as I have now, you know, where I own a lot of my masters. and um, What's that worth? I don't know, but it's personally worth something to me. Mm-hmm. And so what my advice would be like, whatever the thing is that you have to give up if you sign away to a major label or to a, a contract of any kind, surely making a decision to take money is fine if that's the way it's going to, help you continue to be a band, rise to the next level. But don't, dis, don't, don't wave away what you might end up wishing you still had in the end, which whatever that may be, for me, it was the music itself. And so my advice would be, and I, 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 I did this and I was, uh, people thought I was crazy for doing it at the time, but I did it. If you wanna keep things you can find a way. You just, it's really hard, but you just, you don't have to take all the money mm. that they offer you. Think about what, how much money do you really need to keep going forward and say, what, what am I trading away to have more than that? Great. Yeah. Are there any certain interests you have apart from music that maybe people don't know about? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of hobbies. I mean, I still skateboard a lot. Yeah. I ride motorcycles and I like to work on motorcycles. I like to work on motors. I make hats. Um, I make leather goods, both real leather and vegan. And I make um, clothes sometimes. And uh, I like to do creative things with my hands that have nothing to do with music. And it funnels right into, it's, it's for the express purpose of being like, just like opening the, like loosening the jar, top of the jar, mm. of the creative jar, this is a terrible metaphor. <laughs> but that's what it does. You know, I'll be in there working on a hat and boom, a song idea comes to my head yeah. and I run to the guitar, I give up on the other thing. Uh-huh. If it was a passion, I would never give up on my finish. I'd finish the hat, but it's not my passion. It's just art for yeah. the sake of it. Yeah. And I run over and I grab that guitar and I, and I don't put it down until I have a song. Great. Chris Caraba, thank you for being on the podcast. This is wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Ernie Ball's Striking Accord. For the record, that was actually Chris Caraba's third podcast interview he did that day. So big thanks to him for being so generous and accessible. Just a great guest and person. If you'd like to contact us, email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. I should probably ask you, what, what gauge guitar strings do you play? Um, usually I play 11s okay. on acoustic, uh, an electric and... I'm a medium gauge guy for for acoustic. I play a lot of open tuning, so it helps to have medium gauge mm -hmm. for acoustic.